0: Welcome to Genius Leadership Overcoming Everything podcast. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighter mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders about their rollercoaster ride to leading from their zone of genius. If you find the show valuable, could you do me a favor? Rate and review the podcast, share it with your network so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. And for now, let's take the ride together. Hey, genius Leader, welcome to the next episode of the brand theme of the Genius Leadership Podcast. Today I'm going to talk to David Clickman and before I kick off the intro about him and the conversation I just want to make a small disclaimer we will be talking about his book that has a word in it in the title that you might not want your kids to hear so if you have the little ones around maybe pause and wait for this episode till the time alone it's nothing bad in the conversation but the shit word is mentioned a couple of times so I just want to make it as family friendly as possible. They're uh, warning you just in case. So talking about David, he is a South African born and he moved to the UK in 16, uh, 1961. And since 69, he started working on product development or rather brand development, mainly in the drinks industry. And I'm sure that even if you don't drink spirits or. You're not that much into brands. You know the names that David has been creating. One of them, and in fact, one of the first ones he's created was Bailey's Irish Cream. And that one was the start of the whole category of the products, which is the cream liquors. So we're talking with David about the fascinating journey of his with the brand development and some of his unconventional ways to brand development or strategies for it. The things that are quite bold and would go against the uh, the norms in the industry. And he'll explain the philosophy behind it or the thought behind it. And there'll be quite some critique there in a healthy way. And I hope you'll enjoy those thoughts of David. And they will open up your eyes to how can I challenge the status quo in my area, in my industry? How can I go against the flow? What can I do to actually step up and go against those things that don't feel right to me, seem ridiculous, outrageous, uh, maybe somehow unnecessary, whatever it is? So I hope that David's story will really inspire you to take action on the things that you feel like they don't have to be done this way. And the working title for this episode that I've created was It Takes a Village to Build a Brand and Achieve to Birth It. But I think. David said it much, much better than me in the conversation, and that was that success has many fathers. And that will be the overall thread or or a big part of the conversation, how people actually make it work or not. It starts with creating the connection between you as the consultant, for example, or you as the service provider and your client, your buyer, how you can build a relationship, how you can learn to understand them. David is using the words establishing the wavelength so that you actually know what they care about, what what their pains are, and you manage to address them or call them out if needed. It's also about meeting the vendors or the contractors, those people who do the heavy lifting, how David was always against sitting in the boardrooms or conference rooms and getting the fancy presentations from some salespeople among the contractors, he would rather go on the floor, so to say, and talk to the people who do the heavy lifting, as he said, the people who actually created the ideas that were presented in those presentations. So this is also another thing that we might need to get back to a bit more. Everyone has their place in the organization and their role, but to create a real success, you sometimes need to find your ways around those established ways of communication to actually find a person whom you need to understand for real to be able to create something good together david is also talking about the power of decision and power of being brave to to go against the flow within the organizations and he says that quite often the ideas that went to the market among the brands that he has created were actually commissioned by the top management and never the mid management and that stems from this way of seeing your power and daring to take the decisions that might fail, how we are nurturing the mid-management people to to not take those decisions and to not be brave. I I think there will be an interesting conversation there, and David doesn't go too deep into detail there, but it can create quite a lot of thought process. So I hope that will be triggered for you to see how you can be brave or nurture and develop the culture within your organization so that everyone is brave to take those decisions and follow the not so popular path take risks to see what happens lastly it's also about the team i love how david put it that the best teams are mutually admiring societies we're talking about the differences how people are different in the team and i asked david about how to get a, around the frustrations to get through the frustrations of those differences and he seems to just see the beauty of that. Everyone is needed on the team. Everyone knows their part. They're experts in something. And that's the beauty of it. And if you can learn and you can nurture this culture of admiring each other for those differences, that is just the recipe of success. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Let us know what you think about it on LinkedIn. David is quite active there. So am I. We're looking forward to hearing about your insights, your reflections and takeaways. And hey, go and get his book. It's really light read. It's fun. But at the same time, it triggers a lot of thought process. And also it gives a lot of ideas. Whichever branch you are in, whichever industry and what kind of products or services you're working on, you will find something good in his book. That shit will never sell. See you on the other side. Hello, everyone on LinkedIn and other platforms. are joining us live, and also welcome to the to everyone who is joining afterwards and watching the recording in the replay. Today, I'm having a great honor, and I'm very happy that uh, I'm joined by David Gluckman, uh, the author of the book. The Shit Will Never Sell. I, you see, David, I actually tried to match the color <laughs> with mm-hmm. my outfit today to your book. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a heavy piece <laughs> physically with weight, but actually a very light book to read. Uh, lots of humor, lots of great stories, but also a lot of learnings from that, a lot of aha and pan grabbing moments. So to everyone who is watching, I highly recommend. take uh, Go and grab David's book. It's called That Shit Will Never Sell. And David warmest welcome to the Genius Leadership Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you for the generous plug for my book.
0: Mm-hmm. Always because gratefully I, received. It, it was a very uh, great read for me. And I was very happy that I, I had some time off family or away from the family for a weekend sitting in a very old house on a farm in the middle of Iceland. And in mm-hmm. this library, very traditional looking library. And I was reading a book. It was a pure, pure joy to dive into it. And today we're going to talk about the things that I wrote down for myself as the questions I would like to dig deeper into from your book. But before we go into that, I would like to start with a question that I usually ask, with a bit of a tweak uh, with you. Uh, you recently received an email with an invitation to my LiveNR about the 10 ways to reach your sustainable business performance. And your reply was very gracious, uh, thank you, but no thank you. And you you wrote... Uh, I have been performing consistently at a quite a good level for the last 50 years. And I actually can confirm that reading the book and seeing how much greatness you've created. It's not discussable. It's a matter of fact, actually, that you have been performing. So my question to you is, how did you manage that? What's your secret to sustainably performing for 50 years?
1: Well, I don't want to sound big headed, so please um, park that thought. Um,
0: that's that's my, really- my job
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the reason I kept going um, in, in my particular category is that I was passionately interested in ideas and I was lucky enough to work for a single company as an outside consultant for 36 years, consecutive years. And that company is now called Diageo, but it was then called, it started out being called IDV, International Distillers and Vintners. And I think over the period, I dealt with three or four people only. They were my main points of contact. And they, they became very close contacts. They became friends. And I became obsessed with what I had to do. I'd also created a kind of rod for my own back by only giving a single answer to a question. So whatever brief I was given, I always tried to go back with a single answer. and I think. The responses I got on those odd occasions when I came up with two was, you don't really know what the answer is, do you? Go back and give me a single answer, which is is completely different from the way people operate now. I think people deal in multiple solutions and then they believe that market research is a way of determining which of those solutions is right, which I think is a load of nonsense. But um, that's another story. So I think I I was just, I I think, I've thought about problems 24-7. I woke up in in the middle of the night with answers. Um, I was obsessed with what I did. And I think you have to become that if you're going to solve difficult and complicated problems. So I think that's why I kept going.
0: Being obsessed and and thinking on the solution, on the problem and coming up with solutions 24-7. That, like, how did you manage to not burn out? Of course, the passion is the driver. But what's the difference between you doing it and a lot of leaders nowadays doing it and burning out or burning their people out?
1: I think in my case, it was different people. I had different clients in different markets, Mm -hmm. in different conditions, different categories. I know most of them were drinks brands, but some of them were food brands. And um, and I think after Bailey's, which is 1974, um, I became much more confident that I could come up with the correct answer. And confidence is incredibly important, as is the person on the other side of the table. In other words, you can come up with a great idea, but if the other person who commissions it can't see it, then you've got nothing at all. I had people with whom we grew up with the same problem. So when the solution emerged, we both saw it. And I think that was an extraordinary part of what I did.
0: And I, I like it how you cover both parts here, the confidence. And I, I would like to explore more what, how can people nurture and grow their confidence? For you, it was Baileys, which we'll talk, touch upon as well. But how, if you don't have this huge success in the beginning of your career, fairly early on your career, how can you keep working on growing your confidence? And then we'll go into this other part, what you talked about, the, the person across the table.
1: I think I was lucky. I mean, Bailey's came very early on in my career. I think I'd been in it for about four or five years. So I had a chance to spend five years trying to work things out, which was, you know quite important. But uh, the important thing is that it, it is the uh, kind of establishing a wavelength between you and the person who um, has the problem. If you establish a wavelength, um, and, and that applied to working with designers it applied to working with product uh, chemists and people like that, you needed to establish a wavelength between you. So you became more than agency and client. You became colleagues, I suppose. Mm. Also, I was lucky in the sense that I I was working outside the tent. So I wasn't tarred Mm. with the politics. I could say things that were outrageous, and it wouldn't affect my career to the same extent that somebody inside the tent might suffer. So, you know, being an outsider was beneficial both to me and to the company.
0: That's a great point. And that's why quite often we maybe are not as courageous or brave with standing by what we believe in when we are we're a part of this politics game in the organizations. You also named this that you need to be on the same wavelength with the person across the table. and. How do you build that? How do you learn what they are about uh, and how to bring value? Lunch. <laughs> lunch, <laughs> a
1: few beers. Um, getting to it, I think when I started out in, in my career in advertising, the relationship between clients and, and advertising people was quite adversarial. In other words, people kept you at arm's length and you know you were only as good as your last ad. and You always lived with the danger of losing the business. And it was kind of strange, really, that uh, there was no togetherness. And I don't mean that in a kind of motherhood way. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people weren't working together to solve a problem. What is the agency's viewpoint? And you knew that if you came up with the wrong answer, you'd uh, you'd be given a hard time. So I, I moved from that. And I became part of the company and yet not part of the company, which was a kind of perfect relationship because I wasn't bogged down by the politics. And, uh, but, you know, I was outside. I wasn't bogged down by the politics. I could afford to say things that were... But I established very close relationships with a small number of people. Uh, and, we you know, we, we, we understood each other. We both understood the problem, which I think is... Because I think that um, ideas are not the product of one person they the product of more than one person. And I think, in a way, the, the buyer and the seller are almost interchangeable. Uh, there's no reason why I should have come up with the answer. Sometimes the other person could come up with the answer and I might make it a bit better.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful perspective on that. You're talking about this interplay, right? And I, I called our conversation before beforehand, it takes a, a, a village to birth or to grow a brand and actually achieve to birth it. And here you're talking about this creating relationships with some people with whom you work so that you understand each other and you together understand the customer, be it internal customer or external. And one of the uh, such relationships that really excited me in the book was your collaboration with Bob Wagner, the designer who has worked on some of the products that have become iconic that you have created. And... I would love to know how did that relationship happen? Because quite often you would just give a very short brief to him over phone or on paper, very vague ideas or just a couple of bullet points it sounded like, and he would create some masterpiece that really resonated with the customer in the end. So how did that relationship happen?
1: Well, his his wife was our secretary and um, I only discovered that he was a designer where we were looking around for a designer for Baileys. And um, his design for Baileys almost became the, the generic design for all cream liqueurs for 30 or 40 years, because all of them had a cartouche with a pastoral scene, and then there were hundreds of them all mm. over the world. I don't think he got paid anywhere near what he deserved. But mm. I think in his first case, I'd, I'd never actually physically met him. I just oh. wrote a brief out... and gave it to his wife to take home that night and get him to do some designs. And then she brought a dozen designs into the office and we looked and we said, that's the one. And that was it. And I don't think I'd actually met him until after that. So that was pure luck. And that, as it turned out, it, it worked very well. After that, he had an office. He shared our offices. He had a back. A back room in our office, and we became friends we'd go out for beers together and again, he was always encouraged uh well, he just would come in and say, "Look how about this blue egg, which is the fridge product Equilibra I briefed him on the telephone because um mm. I, I was somewhere else and um we came back he was perfect, and he read my mind i suppose um but it was a good again it was this good relationship because He knew exactly what I wanted, and I knew exactly what I wanted, and the two kind of came together. But this was a practice that I applied in all the stuff we did. I never liked working with big design companies because, you know, you you have to pay for the suits and you pay for the presentation and the flash offices. I always wanted to meet the person that did the design. Hmm. I wanted to know who was doing the, the heavy lifting, and even if, because a lot of design companies have a lot of juniors sitting in like hen houses churning out designs. I, I wanted to meet the, the man in the hen house that was doing my design and I wanted him to feel that I would understand he or she, what what they were trying to do. And this was important. And it was always on a personal, a personal level. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that kind of, uh, you know, when you get seduced by some, flashy west end office with great biscuits and beautiful girls i wanted to meet the person who did the the dirty work and that was really important and i so, wanted them to breed my mind also
0: so again it comes back to building a personal relationship with the, with the people and having lunch together and learning how you function yeah,
1: absolutely no fear no no adversarial no challenge no threat. I also like people who did what I did, which is walked into my office and said, if you don't like this design, you're an idiot. Because <laughs> I, th- I think that's, um, that's what you, you should try to foster.
0: So where does that line go between being somehow arrogant, not taking in feedback, but and being smart and knowing what to stand for and standing for that?
1: I don't think it's arrogant. It's, being, um, it's believing. You know, If you come up with a solution... And to me, it's the most exciting thing in the world when you come up with a solution and you're absolutely convinced it's right. There was a thing in the book about distilled Guinness, Mm. which I won't go in in detail, but I I, I can really remember being so excited as when I came to that conclusion. And it was incredibly obvious. I mean, I love ideas that are really obvious. I used to play in a pub cricket team and I would often, if I developed a new brand, take it along for the guys and get them to try it. And I remember one day I was trying out one product and one of the guys turned to me and said, do you get paid for this? I said, why? And he said, well, because it's so bloody obvious. I could have thought of it. And I thought that's one of the great compliments mm. uh, of my life that somebody has said it is obvious. Mm. Uh, Even I a, could do it. <laughs> yeah, well, you can. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science, this. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely quote um, in the book, which um, I think sums up, But uh, it's one of my favourite quotes of all time, written by academics. It says, um, it's written by people called Richard Farson and Ralph Keyes in a book which is called, Whoever Makes the Most Mistakes Wins. And in it, they say, the best ideas aren't hidden in shadowy recesses. They're right in front of us, hidden in plain sight. Innovation seldom depends on discovering obscure or subtle elements, but in seeing the obvious with fresh eyes. And I, if, that, if, if I get buried and have a stone, I'll put that on it because uh, <laughs> it's nice. <laughs>
0: That's a that's very beautiful way of seeing the innovation, and it's very true. That's that's where we all should be looking for and what we should be looking for. But um, well, In a way, that's
1: that's a word I rarely use, innovation, because I think, mm-hmm. to me, innovation is curing COVID and putting people on Mars. It's not about coming up with a new dog food or a new brand of gin. I think it's... It, 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 and I see things where... I saw something the other day about a product which is a, an orange-flavored whiskey,
0: hmm.
1: and it's innovation. It's not innovation at all. It's just lunacy. Uh, but that's another story. You, you can't dignify it with that kind of title. Hmm. It's it's new product development.
0: Hmm. It's interesting that new product development is not innovation. But yeah, I, I could. Uh, I innovation see where means... you're coming from.
1: Innovation means anything new, but, I mean, I think to me, if somebody said to me, you're an innovator, I'd say, well, I'm not.
0: <laughs> you're just being humble, David. That 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 is a lot about you, and that's the beauty of you as a person as well. I would like to tap into that part of that the brand needs a chief to, to be birthed because we discussed that it takes a whole team, right? You, you always worked with designers, with a technical team, Uh, maybe someone else to create the brand. But then you need someone on the top of the organization who is buying uh, what you're creating to to say the bold yes. And sometimes the decision is scary, especially as we discussed, quite often politics is involved. And you've met both people on the top who managed to be bold and say yes to the things and those who didn't. And you're talking about that in the book, that we should nurture and educate our leaders to, to be those decision makers in a in a bold way. So I would like to develop that. What have your observations been and how can we nurture that?
1: Well, I think I had a unique experience because I spent 36 years working with the same company and I worked with people at different levels in different countries. I worked from Brazil to South Korea. And there are a couple of strains that always applied. Uh, The first one was that I never, ever had a successful brand uh, program that was initiated by middle management. Mm. Never worked. Because middle management, I think, probably rightly so, are governed by a fear of failure. And so that they lean heavily on market research to try and underwrite success. And it doesn't. Market research is an unbelievably crude tool. But I never, ever had a single thing that worked with middle management. Never. It just didn't happen. So everything that worked was commissioned by top management. And this was board directors, the CEOs in companies. And that was very important. And there were two kinds of level of interaction with these people. One was the person who says, well, I've paid you to come up with something, therefore get on with it, and I'll do whatever you recommend. And if you fail too many times, I'll get rid of you. But mostly they were above the dirty work in developing a brand. They just simply said, we want a brand, we want it in three months. They were more interested in when than in how. So they didn't want to know. Now, I remember once years and years and years ago when I first started um One of my clients was Birdseye and we went up to their laboratories in Great Yarmouth and a guy stood up and presented a brand and showed huge amounts of market research data to support this brand and uh, turned to the chairman and said, well, can we launch it? And he said, no. So the guy said, well, why not? Look at all the good results. And the guy, he turned around and said, because it tastes disgusting and I'm not having that in my portfolio. End of. But there were two types. The, the majority of top people were above the fight, so they trusted you to, to do something and to do it well. But uh, there was one person who was a board director, a global marketing director, with whom I worked for about five or six years. And he and I became uh, alter egos. We, you know, we both understood the problem. And he was very hands-on. He would telephone from Uruguay and say, the blue on the packaging is too bright. Turn it down. And at one level you hated people like that, but on the other, you really respected them because they were as engaged and concerned as you were. Mm. I think that's an important point. I, I don't think I think marketing marketing people and middle management is not the way to start with new ideas. They have to start somewhere else. And to me, the ideas commissioned by top people was the only game in town. It's the only one that ever worked. I think marketing people also tend to overthink things. They make things much more complicated than they need to be. But there's an idea in the book, which is called IQ. Do you remember that? The yellow, Yeah,
0: the yellow, the yellow guy with the glasses.
1: With the glasses. That was before the Minions, by the way. But it was commissioned by one person and then taken on by someone else. And I went to present this and I could get quite passionate about something that I really loved and liked really loved that idea. When I presented it, the response was, well, where are the other ideas? So I said, what do you mean? And the response was, well, I have to have ways of benchmarking this idea, which is complete nonsense. You know, that's that's pointless uh, to do that. You either believe it or you don't. And in this case, she didn't. But um, that's an issue.
0: Hey, Genius Leader, I'm chiming in here quickly to ask you to do one thing for me. If you're enjoying this episode, share it with one person who you think would find it valuable as well. Let's spread the goodness together so that more people can play within their zone of genius. I think it's quite controversial or quite triggering to many people what you're saying right now. And the whole philosophy of you with coming up with one answer or br- br- like presenting one solution and you either take it or you leave it, quite a lot of people would not dare to do it. And it also again comes to the confidence, not only in your idea, but in yourself. And I yeah. like how you put it that if you are if you presenting five ideas, you are not committed to any of them and they're all kind of the good enough solution. And if we're talking about creating a brand that will withstand the decades, you really need to have a golden idea, not a good enough, quite often. And there, how to find this middle ground of being bold, but surviving the
1: politics? It is not so much that. It's, I think if you gave me a brief on almost anything, I could give you half a dozen plausible ideas in an afternoon. And each one of those ideas you would think was pretty reasonable and would solve your problem. But I wouldn't know which, which was the best one. And um, I, I think it takes a little bit longer. Sometimes you, you come up with an idea in a meeting. You don't, I, I once, I think you saw the Sheridan's idea, had the idea mm-hmm. before the briefing, oh, well. which was, but the, the huge thing about that was that somebody at the other side of the table said, yeah, i will go with that. I mean, which is which is enormous, um, enormously important.
0: You mentioned that you think marketers usually overcomplicate things. Why do you think or where does where do you think it comes from? And what's the good way of balancing that out with a strong leadership?
1: It's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, I remember working in the Unlever in advertising before I went into um, uh, and, into brand development. And I, I remember looking at the different companies and the different sort of corporate uh, stances that they took. And the, the company that was the most intellectual was um, the detergent company. Mm-hmm. So you had all these kind of double firsts from Oxford and Cambridge, uh, the best colleges, working on detergents, which kind of seemed weird. And you'd go into a Lever Brothers meeting and it was like, being at some kind of, um, I don't know, meeting at All Souls. It was deeply intellectual. And, um, and you looked away and said, well, these guys are talking about stuff that's designed to wash your socks. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange, really. It was very why academic. So? Mm-hmm.
0: Why, why Why? is it strange? That's changing life for people. <laughs> oh, I don't
1: know. I, I think my business has become so kind of riddled with... Um, Neuroscience, uh, you know, everybody talks about neuroscience and behavioral economics and uh, sprints and brainstorms and all that kind of thing. And I I didn't think any of those things really work. And it's you're putting things on too high a plane, Mm -hmm. so you're losing sight of the simple objective. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I like to keep things simple. And because, you know, I'd worked in in this one company for such a long time. They were simple. You see, you asked a question about market research, and I just had a look, and I noticed that expenditure on market research last year amounted to $73 billion. $73 billion, that's the equivalent to the gross national product of Guatemala for what mm-hmm. it's called, or Kenya. Now, it's a huge amount of money, and I wonder if... Um, If anybody ever does a return on investment analysis Mm. on market research, because uh, it's a huge amount of money, and um, I think an awful lot of it is wasted.
0: Which part of that is not wasted? What do you think people should double down on and just scrap the rest?
1: Well, I wrote a piece many years ago that said that 90% of all new products fail, and the ones that are monitored usually come from big companies who invariably spend vast amounts of money on research hmm. uh, to check out the ideas. And I wrote a piece in a magazine, oh, this is 30 years ago, saying, why is it that we blame everybody but the market research companies? You know, somebody delivers you an answer to a question which says, There's a, we're guaranteeing that people are going to buy your product and they don't. And we never go back to them and say, look, this is a bad product that you're selling. And yet, people spent seventy-three billion dollars mm. last year. It's it's what the Americans call butt covering. In other words, you can pass the blame for failure onto something other than yourself uh, when when you're not taking uh, you know taking a decision.
0: Mm. So, what you believe in is really taking the responsibility and owning your decision or the. Yeah, owning your decisions, it sounds like. Well, market research
1: is is a great excuse for people. Uh, I think if you've been in a business for six months, you should know as much about the business as you need to know in order to take decisions on ideas. I mean, I've seen absolutely terrible ideas put into market research and, you know, wasted money evaluating something that patently won't work and doesn't work. Uh, completely pointless, and, and, and people hang on this. But the interesting thing about my um, piece in the paper was that no one challenged me, not a single person. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we did very little research on all that stuff. You know, you've got people who make the products who have a really good judgment on what's good and what isn't. So why are you going to ask some layman what what a good whiskey is? or a good breakfast cereal. You should know yourself. You don't have to go and get a layman's opinions, I don't mm. think.
0: But you still did focus groups, right? And you're writing a lot of examples of that for good or for bad. So why why did you continue doing them? If you <laughs> feel like a kind
1: of, Oh, Because I, I, I'm not as arrogant as you, you think. <laughs> I mean, it's actually quite good <laughs> sometimes to go and ask people what they think of your idea. And occasionally... Sometimes you would ignore what they said because you didn't think they were the right people. I mean, when we did libra, I said to my client, look, nobody's going to understand what this is about. Let's just do it and see what happens. And let's not, I mean, you are going to fail. But if you're going to fail, fail quickly and fail cheaply.
0: Do you think that it actually, uh, talking about the cheaply... What is more expensive to do some market research and bail the ideas in the process, or get them out on the market and like p- putting all the eggs in in one basket and and failing then?
1: Well, if you, look, if you put something out on the market, if if I worked in a drinks company now or any company for that matter, I'd be happy to put stuff out on the market based on my judgment and knowledge of the of the category. And any everybody, every brand ma- manager, marketing manager should be. Feel the same way, you, you know. You can't sort of say, "I've no idea whether consumers are going to buy this." You should have a very good idea of whether consumers will buy it. I think that's um, that's important. Could I just raise a point that might be of interest to you? Because um, I, know, I know you you're keen on this team building and how people work together. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned was that the best teams were mutual admiration societies. In other mm-hmm. words. I worked really well with designers because I couldn't design. So I really respected what they could do uh, because I couldn't do it myself. So I, I didn't try and design things myself. I, I said, I respect you for what you do. In the same way with R&D people and distillers and people like that, I could give them a different perspective on what they did, but I couldn't do what they did. So we we all admired each other. As soon as you get people whose skill sets are similar, uh, you end up in debate and argument mm-hmm. and discord, which doesn't really work. Sorry, so I really interrupted about,
0: you. No, 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 it's good. It, it's a very good point. Uh, it, we're coming into this diversity, right? And, and what you, I really like how you said it about the mutual, mutual mind societies, that, that talks about the inclusion, that you actually appreciate each other's differences and we bring them to the table as the points of connection, not the points of separation. So yeah. how do you nurture that within the team, the sense of admiring each other and respecting each other's opinions? By, by having
1: people with different skill sets. It, mm. it's uh, I can't do what you do mm. and you can't do what I do. So therefore, because we're together, we admire each other for mm. our particular skills, which are, are different, right. uh, and that's mm. important. If you get people together who are the same, then they start. And I've been in companies like that mm. where you know, one we'll person have. thinks he can do the same thing.
0: Yeah, we've all all have been there and observed that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I want to come back to Bailey's. You you mentioned it a couple of times, and uh, I would like to to know your relationship to it. Uh, I when reading the book, I felt this. <laughs> I, I can to this analogy of some singers who become very popular with one song and this their first hit. And then decades later, they're still asked to perform it as an opening of their concerts or whatnot. And they just hate it. They grew to hate it. They kind of outgrown that part of their career or so, but their fans are still there for that song. And I see it sometimes. I've seen some performers who come out on the stage with that song and they're just not mentally there or emotionally there but then they come with the other song and they're completely there present. So how is your relationship with Bailey's years and decades after you have created it?
1: Well, Bailey's is 1974, so it's uh, 47 years, 47 years ago. I think it's one of the sad things about brands, uh, but it's an inevitability. You pass on the brand. I think it was sometime in November 1974, the brand was passed on to the Irish company. And uh, we never saw each other again, which is exactly mm-hmm. what happened. I mean, we didn't. I mean, it was no longer my idea or our idea because it wasn't only mine. Um, it belonged to the client, so they could do with it what they whatever they chose. And uh, it's very gratifying to see what a wonderful job these people have done with it. Nobody's, I think, nobody's um, ever canvassed my opinion. I went to see Bailey's about. 18 months ago, I was in Dublin, and I thought I'd call in. And um, I, I don't think anybody knew I had anything to do with Bailey's until I wrote my book because, uh, you know, nobody was going to broadcast that. And you, see, you have various experiences. I remember one pack design that they did. I hated it so much that if I was in a bar, I would ask the barman to just turn the bottle around so I couldn't see the front of it because I didn't <laughs> like it. Goodbye, and I can't understand why Bailey's is so heavily targeted towards women. And it, you know, not saying there's nothing, no reason why men shouldn't enjoy mm. uh, chocolate, cream, and Irish whiskey. But these, you know, people make decisions about your brands, and um, it's the way of the world. It's just mm. reality. So I did meet somebody from Bailey's, probably for the first time, and many, many years. And, you know, success has many fathers. I mean, I think, as I wrote in the book, there are about as many people who were in the post office in Dublin in 1916 claimed to have created Baileys. And I, I went to a meeting once Hello. where the company said that they'd invented it, and I just kept quiet because I thought it was quite funny.
0: <laughs> it's. It's interesting to to see this journey when, as you said, you need to let go of the ownership of it. You you created it, but then it's someone else uh, bringing it further on the journey of the brand. And um, for good and for bad, they can uh, take it to the next level, but they can also make the changes that killed the whole brand.
1: Well, I think that probably has happened in some cases. And in other cases, uh, they've taken a brand which, I mean, I was very pleased with the initial thought behind Ciroc, mm.
0: but I hated
1: what they did with the brand. I mean, it, it's mm. one of my least favorite brands because I thought grape vodka was a very distinctive new style of vodka, but I, I didn't think they did it the way I would have liked, but,
0: you mm. know, that's
1: you have to live with that.
0: Yeah, that's that's important to let go of the things that you can't affect, right? I talk well, it's not enough
1: just thing. to get paid for what you do. I mean, you hope that what you do is done in the way that you particularly like, <laughs>
0: yeah, especially especially if it's a combination of those. Talking about being paid, you when you retired from the from being a consultant, you went and created your own brand or a couple of them, and you talk quite a lot about the cool swan, the one mm-hmm. that that uh, you do feel like it's it's a success. And you're all talking about that you've been using your retirement savings savings for that brand. I would like to hear how that process was. For you, when it was suddenly your future money at stake instead of being a consultant and uh, creating something with someone else's pocket, did they change anything in the process or your attitude during the creation of the product or was it the same?
1: Not at all. Well, in fact, I didn't spend so much that it took away my care home money. I mean, I had enough to live on, and, uh, but I did invest a substantial amount. I never even thought about the, the financial side. I just thought about the, I did the brand the same way as I did every other brand. One idea, one solution. But I learned lots of new things. I, I'm learning things today. I talk to a lot of young startups, and um, I keep learning new things by, by talking to them, which is great. I have a client who's 14 years old who started yeah. in business when he was 13.
0: And he's, already hired you, wow. <laughs> he's, not like a fee, he's,
1: not, he, he's not a fee-paying client. I, I make his pocket okay. money, doesn't stretch uh, to my fees, but uh, I've enjoyed working with him. He's a schoolboy and he sells eggs okay. to people locally in his area and he's about to franchise. To, to so What his, are you
0: learning from the entrepreneurs who, that you work with?
1: I was. It was lovely. I mean, he read my book. He must be the youngest reader of my book, uh, which is quite nice. Is
0: it? Anyway allowed thought, to, to read it? Uh, like, are we talking about the alcoholic beverages? What's the age <laughs> limit for that?
1: <laughs> no, I asked him why. How I might have changed his mind, and he said to me that he thought the brand was simply putting a name on a pack hmm. uh, so that people could identify. It. But when he read my book, he thought there might be a bit more to the brand than. Um, he'd originally thought, so I gave him a new name. I started out by offering him Egomaniac, crazy about eggs, but he said it wasn't his personality. Hmm. So we ended up calling it Mellow Yellow from a 1960s song by Donovan. (laughs) Yeah, that
0: he wouldn't come up with for sure himself. (laughs) No,
1: (laughs) no, he wouldn't.
0: All right. But uh, talking about entrepreneurs nowadays, quite a lot of them are considering taking investments from outside. What Do you have any opinion or recommendations on, on how to think about that? What kind of questions to ask yourself when you're going through that path of thinking how to develop your brand further?
1: But you have to have a very good idea to get outside investment. In fact, one guy that I have contact with has just been on that program, Dragon's Den. It's, 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 Is it a UK? it's where a number of um, very rich people uh, become a panel and you go and pitch your brand to them. Okay. And if they like it, they'll offer you some money in exchange for a share of the business and they will give you mentoring as well. I, th- I think it's a very broad area and I don't have an opinion about other people's money versus spending your own. I think it's nice if you can get it, but uh, it could work both ways. I couldn't give anyone advice.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's good to know that, uh, yeah, you see both the good and bad in the both. And it's really about their personal choice of the of uh, every individual and every entrepreneur.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It depends on the idea, I suppose,
0: yeah, as well. I guess so. In the book, you also talk about the, those couple of brands where, that had huge success Dexter, Equilibra and how you got into the uh, mode of develop, trying to kind of ride that wave of success by developing more similar products or products that would co- collaborate with those. And you write that instead of that, you should have focused on really need down on those, so to say. And you wrote, quote unquote, in a way the traveling became more important than arriving. And I would like to discuss this, traveling versus arriving, and and how you would actually do it differently nowadays, knowing what you've learned already. Well, first of
1: all, I think they call call the term pivot. This was a drinks company, an alcoholic beverage company, moving into non-alcoholic products, where the rules are very different. First of all, the profit margins are much lower. So the formula becomes high volume against low unit profit per item which is tough. So, therefore, uh, that, that changed a bit. And I think what we did with those brands was um, invested too much into in an infrastructure. It, we had the, the, our own marketing company, which was like about a dozen people. We bought a, a, a factory. We bought premises, a sort of mm. big country house and stuff, and a mm. bottling plant and everything else. What it should have been was uh, an extension of the existing business and we should have outsourced all the production so that we didn't have to get involved with um, uh, producing. I think that was a mistake. We also got very, there's something very sexy about developing brands. You know, you, you start with an mm-hmm. idea, you have a problem, then you have an idea, everybody loves the idea, so you make the brand, you see it going along the production line, and then you see it in the shops and people write about it. So we did. We started off with Dexter's, which was a sports drink, because we all liked sports, so that's where we started. Then Aquilibra became different, and that became iconic, and then Princess Diana said she liked it. So we got up to a million cases in about two years. But the next step involved major marketing investment, and I think they were tired with the Bailey story. They said, well, great brands make it on their own. They don't need much investment. Not true. Then we did Purdy's, which was targeted at the entertainment business. I remember we sold our first case in in uh, Abbey Road Studios, mm. and then we had the next one we were going to do was uh, it was called Kafka, and it was going to be a, it was based on beta carotene and uh, delivering a kind of um, long life benefit. I remember we went to Georgia because there were all these stories about people living to over 100 in the Georgian mountains. So that was, uh, uh, that was another one, antioxidants and beta-carotene. And we got so excited, uh, the company got so excited with developing all these new ideas that what we should have done was ruthlessly focused on the few and built the business that way. But as I say, the traveling was more fun than the, the arriving in this case.
0: Do you see that sometimes traveling should be more prioritized than the arriving, or is it always that the arriving should be the, the priority? What's your take on that? Uh, the, the,
1: the journey is terrific. I mean, it's just that's what I did for a living, and I loved the the whole process—the agony of not having an answer to the ecstasy of having one—was mm-hmm. a was a tremendous experience. Um, and the people who who did the arriving with, with, with other people than me you know i developed the idea and then marketing people would put it to music <laughs> mm.
0: talking about not having an answer and then having it you sometimes played around with words and some brands cre- were why created from you just look through the the, the vocabulary that I was in and and building the whole story and the whole design language and even the product taste or so, just from that. Can you explain that? I think that I've never seen it before. Uh, Is that something that you came up with or is that practiced anywhere else?
1: I'm I'm very keen on crossword puzzles. And Mm. my, my, my wife and I do very complicated crossword puzzles all the time. And I think the power of words is important. And in this case, I think the case you may be referring to was and developing, was J. B. A, developing a, a premium version of J&B whiskey. And I was looking around and thinking, well, J, I think, is eight points in Scrabble. So it's a, quite a rare um, letter. And I thought J is what makes J&B, in a sense, a uh, distinctive part of it. Can we find anything with J? I couldn't think of any, anywhere else to look. So I looked in my dictionary for words beginning with J, and I came up with jet. Well, I came up with two, Jade and Jet. And I thought Jet kind of summed up what I was trying to get across, which was that it, it, J&B was going to be modern and it was going to break with the conventions of whiskey as an old man's drink. And i had this vision in my mind of a, a young guy in IT or the movie business, you know, in a white suit with expensive Ray-Bans driving a posh car. And he he would drink J&B Jet. That was the picture that formed in my head. And the designer, of course, put it to music by taking jet and making a jet black bottle. So he turned jet, my meaning of jet set, into jet black, which is he had a black bottle with a black label and red lettering. It was it was great. It was just a it's a, just a place to look for ideas. Mm. Yeah,
0: it's 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 beautiful, and I really like how you how you bring the your hobbies and your passions like doing the crosswords or playing scribble with your wife and that gives you some ideas and feeds into your work so I really want to emphasize that example because I find beautiful and it's not only about the intellectual hobbies like like yours it can be your sports passion or it can be something else that you do in the free time and that gives you the the fuel, the ideas that you can actually implement and that can actually feed into the solutions that you have for the problems that you have at work.
1: I think once, you, once you, the machine starts turning over, when you're trying to find the answer to something, you'll look everywhere. I remember once finding the name for a beer on the back of a bus. And I was, I was, in, I was in, no, on the back of a truck. I was in a car. I was looking for a brand name. For a beer, and there was a truck which had obviously come from Germany because it had the word G A N Z Guns, mm. which I think you speak German.
0: Yeah, Guns yeah, means
1: complete, quiet. doesn't it? Hmm?
0: Yeah, uh, quiet or uh, yeah, just
1: Guns twelve bottles or something, and mm. I thought Guns, what a great name! And I've actually got a bottle with Guns on it. Oh, okay. right here. Well, yes, yeah, if you can see it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's
1: just, yeah. <laughs> of fell off the back of a truck, as they say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> but that because
1: you, you're thinking all the time about what the answer is, what's the answer, what's the answer, mm-hmm. and suddenly there it is in the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't write a script for that. You can't, I don't even think you can teach it. Mm-hmm. I think you have to be, you, and if you're looking for one answer, then that's the mm-hmm. discipline. You know, I've got to find mm-hmm. the one solution. And there it was in the back of the truck. And I love
0: that. I, idea. I I love how you now made the full circle. We started talking about the like the given the single answer to every problem or every question, and now you came to the, the like that actually takes discipline and commitment. And I really love how you really connected the like the beginning of, and the end of conversation because I would like to wrap up right now, being mindful of the time, and okay. usually wrap up with three questions David the first one would be what would you be uh, what would your three pieces of advice be to the genius leaders listening or watching and that can be the summary of what we have discussed or something that we've missed and you would like to emphasize
1: what what, what sorry did you say that again I am quite get it
0: what, what what would be your three pieces of advice for the genius leaders something that you want to emphasize as the lessons to take from the today
1: okay um to people in companies, I would say you should treat brand development as a specialist activity and try to find people to run brand development inside the company. It's it's more realistic than having an outside person to do it. So I think that's uh, – I think it is a specialist activity. And I'd stick with my belief that um, – and you have to give that person five years to, to – Get themselves into the in, into the business. Uh, you'd have to find good clients within the company who are good at buying ideas. Oh, what else will I say? Um, yeah, I think that's very important. That the person that, you know, you can have the best idea in the world, but if nobody wants it, and I think I would I would keep investment in new products in in established categories where you're not talking about spending billions on. Um, New technology. In most times, you, you're dealing with existing technology, except that you're going to fail. But if you're going to fail, keep it cheap and make mm-hmm. it quick. I mean, right. Guinness Light um, spent a million pounds on, on research before it launched, and it was a complete and utter failure. So mm-hmm. that, you know, was, and that was in 1970 something. A million pounds then would be a lot more than that now. But keep it simple, keep it... um, I think what I was able to do was to sort of get rid of the parade. Lots of ideas, lots of packed designs, huge amounts of expenditure, lots of research to find out which thing worked. Because I had no desire to do that, you know, I was part of the company. I mean, I wasn't interested in making money. I was interested in solving problems, Mm -hmm. and that was important.
0: I really love it how, to me everything about you is really about keeping it simple. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's actually an art to keep things simple. And as you said, innovation is really about seeing the obvious with a new fresh eyes. And that takes discipline and it, that takes courage and that takes um, the, the thinking that is not understood by everyone and appreciated by everyone.
1: No, I mean, I, 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 was, I was never hugely successful because <laughs> not many companies would buy into this one idea thing. They say, no, you can't, you can't work like that. It doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah, you are the living proof of the opposite.
1: <laughs> so I had a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the important part. And I think that's going back to the beginning of the conversation. That's part of the sustainable performance that you need to have fun, Really, Absolutely. <laughs> David, one practical piece of advice for our genius leaders, listening or viewing, something that they could try Already today, after listening to our conversation.
1: Something, okay, I'll tell you, I'll give you a practical piece of information that would save companies an absolute stack of money. They could read my book and there's a, couple, there's a couple of pages in the book which teaches you how to do your own focus group research. And it's really very simple. I mean, I think that you really don't have to be a genius or to have a degree in psychology to do focus groups. And if people read the information in my book, there's a very simple set of lessons as to how to go about it that most people could learn how to do focus groups in an afternoon. And they save an incredible amount of money by doing it themselves. Mm. I was always amazed when I did focus groups in America where you had 15 people from the client. You had research managers, analysts, insight specialists, all sitting and looking when they could have been in there doing the groups instead of me, it would have saved them a huge amount of money. And I think as a practical thing, I would do that. I would suggest that to companies. And the other thing was um, my Columbo moment, um, is to look back at the research you've already done, because most of the answers to most of the Mm. questions exist in your data bank. Uh, The trouble is people do research and then throw it away. I always started a project by saying, give me all the information you've got that's relevant. Things don't change in five years. They say and you can find most of the answers in there.
0: That's brilliant. That really <laughs> should motivate people to go buy your book. Again, that shit will never sell. And uh, we'll put the link to uh, to the book in the show notes to the episodes so that it's easy for people to click and, and get it. And uh, yeah, just read it, implement, and save a lot of money for yourself and your company.
1: That would be nice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> david, if people want to get more of you get in, in a conversation or or maybe hire you as a consultant for themselves and their companies, what are the best ways to go get
1: that? If they email me at david at t-s-w-n-s.net.
0: Wow. David. That's a
1: shortened T-S-S- version of David. Of that shit will never sell. T S W N S dot And mm-hmm. uh, if anybody buys the book, I'm always open to uh, to talk. Love talking to readers.
0: Great. We'll put that in the uh, in the show notes and uh, make sure that people reach out to you. Be nice, David. Thank you so much for for the conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I learned. Even more, uh, even after reading your book. So, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: It's a pleasure. Delighted to meet you as ever. Thank you very much, Anna.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Genius Leadership. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button to not miss an episode. And to help more people become even better leaders, rate and review our podcast and share it with your communities. For more conversations about living and leading from your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honest conversation about leading yourself and others. And it's my honor to be your guide in overcoming everything.